Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So today I'm speaking with Professor David Nichols. David is a professor in the School of Clinical Sciences at AUT University in Auckland, New Zealand. He's a physiotherapist, lecturer, researcher and writer with a passion for critical thinking in and around the physical therapies. David is founder of the Critical Physiotherapy Network, an organisation that promotes the use of cultural studies, education, history, philosophy and sociology and a range of other disciplines in the study of the profession's past, present and future. In 2017, David published the book, The End of Physiotherapy, which is a critical history of physiotherapy, and he's currently working on the follow-up to this book called Physiotherapy Otherwise. So David's work on the professionalization and socialization of physiotherapy, and crucially questioning where it's come from and where it may be going, if going anywhere at all, resonates with my thinking about osteopathy and the social and historical circumstances which shaped the profession's development and maintains its current practice. In this episode, we talk about the role of qualitative research in helping to carve a new ways of being as professionals, and the revised values, identities, and practices associated with the shift. We talk about building professional practice from the ground up, with a new set of foundations and principles. We talk about the tension which often finds its way into the curricula when biomedical subjects sit alongside social, psychological and more humanistic topics. We talk about the body or person as machine and how this contrasts with a phenomenological view of which he argues for. We talk about how critical theory has shaped much of his analysis and arguments of physiotherapy, such as the impact of power on culture, ideological orientation inquiry and the historical context within which the establishment of physiotherapy took place. We talk about the original questions asked by society and answered by physiotherapy and osteopathy, which catalyzed the emergence and development of these respective professions. We then pose that if the questions and needs of society have changed, then so should the shape, scope and purpose of our respective professions. Finally, we talk about his view of the post-professional era, which we all may be on the cusp of. So as always with these podcasts, it was a complete delight talking to David. His analysis of physiotherapy is forensic, yet the entire time he never once forgets the central role that patients play in both healthcare practice and purpose. As you'll notice when listening, we wander or wade through a range of related topics for over 90 minutes and if it wasn't for the 11 hour time difference with him needing to commence his day and me needing to end it we would have gone on so i bring you professor david nichols dave welcome to the podcast thank you it's lovely to be here and thank you for the invite and uh, as i said in the email um i've been listening to your podcast for a while now so it's lovely to actually see you and have a conversation with you. Maybe you could start by telling us a bit about your academic and clinical and intellectual background. 
Okay, so well, first off, I'm a physiotherapist. I trained in the UK in the 1980s and worked as a physio in, initially my plan was to work in paediatrics. I worked at the children's hospital, did my rotations, um, but increasingly, or even at an early stage of my um, academic career, I was interested in, um, um, sorry, the start of my clinical career, I was interested in the academic world. Did a master's degree in research methodology at, um, at, uh, in Birmingham in the UK. At a school where I thought I was going to be getting relatively straight research methods, it ended up being a very radical left-wing Marxist department where we, we, we didn't learn about SPSS and uh, correlation coefficients. We learned about black feminist methodology and uh, disability activism. And it was a phenomenal thing because I, I, it resonated with me so much. I've always been quite a political person and I've always been interested in what the lived experiences of my patients were as much as the clinical side. And this was fantastic. So I did my master's degree Moved to Sheffield Hallam in uh, 94 to start a teaching job, my first teaching job. Worked there for six years and then emigrated to New Zealand with my family in 2000. And I've been working at Auckland University Technology, the big physiotherapy school there, um, for the last 20 years. I'm a, now a professor of critical physiotherapy. And in the last few years, I've been trying to do a lot more work with developing international colleagues to push a much more theoretical critical agenda into the profession. So in 2014, I uh, set up the Critical Physiotherapy Network, which we thought was just going to be a collection of a handful of people from around the world who was doing this work. And it's now got more than 700 members in more than 50 countries. Um, a few years ago, I set up the International Physio History Association because one of the biggest things about critical thinking is you spend a lot of time looking at how you arrived at this point and where that came from. So history has always been a fascination for me. More recently, I've joined the, um, I helped set up the Environmental Physiotherapy Association with Philip Marich, who is a um, PhD student with me. And um, I suppose the other notable points would be that I, I probably think of myself first and foremost as a writer. And uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called The End of Physiotherapy, which um, caused a little bit of a stir in the profession, I think as much because of the title, but also because it was really the first attempt to do a book-length critical history, to ask the question about how did we get to the here as a profession what are the problems we're now facing and where do we go? I've also co-edited a couple of books with the Critical Physio Network. Um, Manipulating Practices was the first one and then Mobilising Knowledge has just come out. And I'm in the process of writing a follow-up to the end of physiotherapy, which will be out reasonably early next year, probably in the middle of next year, called Physiotherapy Otherwise. So that's me. Thank you so much. And, and you are, you, I say pretty much not every guest, but most guests, I, I tell a bit of a white lie, but it is true that you are top of the list. But I've got so many who are top of the list that it's, yeah, you yeah. certainly were. And, and, and my history of kind of coming into your work is as a PhD student and trying to get to grips with qualitative research. I stumbled across these series of three papers in um, the International Journal of Therapy and Rehabilitation, I think, if you remember back in 2009. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just, it was like a, 
the torch through the dark for me. Oh, wow. They, they, they were wonderful. And, and I'll link or signpost these papers in the show notes because they were really, truly brilliant and really helped me get my head around a, a tricky time of my doctoral studies. And I think, I mean, that's an interesting point to start with because those papers have been read and used by a lot of people. I've had a lot of emails from people who've said they found those papers useful. And I think that points to something about some of the ways in which I think I'm a little bit unusual in physiotherapy. But it's astonishing to me that even undergraduate physiotherapists, and I, I can't speak to osteopaths, but certainly from a physiotherapy point of view, they have almost no exposure to these other ways of thinking. And so those papers are quite rudimentary. I mean, as you would know now, they, they're introductory. But for a lot of people, they're just the starting point. And undergrads, postgrads, yeah, it, su it surprises me, given how deeply we are embedded, not just in quantitative methods, but in quantitative ways of thinking from the very first day of training, it starts. And it's just, you know, we have these assumptions about knowledge and truth and reality, which are just pretty much just battered into us from, from childhood. And so the minute, I think what was challenging for me or being exposed or making that transition from a largely quantitative that purely quantitative upbringing as a, as an undergrad, and then suddenly finding mm. out there's this thing called ontology or epistemology, or there are different mm. descriptions or conceptions of, of some of these ideas. It was it was a bit like the Truman Show, where you suddenly find that there's a whole other reality reality beyond the yes. beyond the fence. And your papers really broke that down and gave me some comfort, and then inspired myself and a couple of colleagues, Nikki Petty and Graham Stew, to write two papers, similar papers pretty much introducing qualitative methods to, to manual therapists. And we pretty much just copied your format and they did pretty well too. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to go back to a point you just made about this being battered into us. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the ways that these ways of thinking are not battered in, mm -hmm. but come in very subtly in ways that seem obvious. Um, when we think about what the critical part of the work that I do is, what critical means for me, one big part of it is to, is to try and take those things that seem obvious that shape the way we think. Now, I don't know whether physios think particularly that the volumes of anatomy that they get and physiology and biomechanics and kinesiology, particularly in the early days of their training, are, are, are just neutral technologies, but they absolutely aren't. They shape a particular way to think about bodies, about people, about health, about well-being, and nobody explains it to them. And nobody says, we are giving you one perspective here, and it's a very powerful perspective. And it's going to shape the way you think for the rest of your career. But it, that's the stuff that really intrigues me, the stuff that comes in in the kind of sneaky way. Exactly. Well, you, I think you, I, somewhere I wanted to ask about how biomedicalism sneaks its way into curriculum. I think you mentioned it's mm. somewhere, I think. But and just a, a, analogous to that is looking at quantitative papers published and as a qualitative researcher, you have to reflect and be quite critical of the positions and the assumptions that you're carrying with you during your inquiry. And then the quantitative research, hence in a, in a thesis, you have to have a dedicate, you know, maybe a couple of chapters to, to your theoretical positioning. Likewise, with, with the papers, you've got to acknowledge the, the position and assumptions that you hold, whereas the quantitative research is just the assumption is when you're reading a quantitative paper, a systematic review or, or randomized controlled trial, there's no mention about the epistemological ontological 
positioning of the researcher. It's just assumed you're all on the same page. So there is just this, yeah, there's just this assumption that it's so dominant that it doesn't even need to be said that we're all you know, post-positivists or, or whatever the view might be. There's a, there's a quote that I used that opened my PhD thesis um, back in 2008 that I put in the, the front of the book, The End of Physiotherapy. And it's written by a, a New Zealand GP and poet, a guy called Glenn Colquhoun. And he was writing about the relationship between European settlers and Maori in New Zealand, which is like any indigenous culture, any color, colonized culture is fraught. And he said, the thing about majorities is not that they can't see minorities, it's that they can't see themselves. Hmm. And although he was talking about New Zealand Europeans settling an indigenous country and colonizing it, I think that relates to physiotherapy. It's not that we can't see necessarily other ways. And I think it's true of quantitative researchers. They know that there are existential and experiential aspects of health. They know that there are socially constructed aspects of health. They, they live in the real world. They go to their doctor. They take their kids to school. They shop at the shops. They, they live in the real world. It's just they don't see how their own framing has been conditioned in a particular way. To, to assume that numbers, quant research, um, results conclusion, methods results conclusion kind of models, they presume these to be just an expression of the truth. Yeah. And everything else is inferior to that. And so you get these hierarchies of, of knowledge and you get case studies at the bottom and randomized control trials at the top. And you get this over overbearing system that says, if you're going to be a, a proper professional, you've got to imbibe these ways of thinking about the truth and basically see all that other stuff as marginal. Yeah, and I think Lachlan um, describes the hierarchy of evidence as an epistemolog epistemological hierarchy that pretty much you've got, you know, there's a certain valid truth that sits at the top and all the kind of the old nonsense, the qualitative or or expert opinion, as it's sometimes called, that just resides in the kind of Vauxhall conference leagues of, of evidence. Vauxhall conference leagues. And one of the things that I think, um, certainly what I've been trying to do with a lot of the work with things like the Critical Physio Network is trying to connect this up with other ways of thinking in physiotherapy. We, um, I wrote a chapter for a new edited collection called Mobilizing Knowledge, which is an edited collection of critical writings from people in the Critical Physio Network. And it's just come out. And in it, I wrote a chapter with my brother, who's a photography teacher in London. And we looked at some photographs of that had appeared in physiotherapy textbooks over the years. And he brought his kind of um, photographic history lens to talk about how photography had become aware of itself and aware of its positioning and how the photographer had to stop thinking of themselves as some kind of ob objective recorder of history yeah. and instead see themselves as framing a picture in a particular way and start to become critical of things like how you project body image to women, what you do about taking photographs of people in Ethiopian famines, what you do about that Canadian seal hunter who clubs a baby seal to death. You know, you're not neutral. And when we looked at these physio photographs, it was astonishing how they framed the patient as the kind of passive object of our gaze and the expert person who did things to people. I mean, you look at some of those early Syriac's books and they're, they're, they're almost borderingly abusive in the way that the the... the great man 
fixes this passive mannequin on a bed, sometimes with the help of a female kind of assistant. And it frames this idea that you you can have this kind of neutral gaze that sees people as just objects, as pieces of meat to be manipulated and mobilised. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's um, an accident that we're starting to see now a move away from passive treatments, so supposedly called passive treatments, towards more activity and exercise based approaches. Partly because there's a much greater awareness from the public, much greater public power as consumers to decide which health professionals they go to. And so we're all having to see them as people who are making choices in their own right, not just as passive recipients of our expertise. I'm not sure that that shift from passive to more active modalities has got much to do with efficacy. I've talked with Stan Paris and Rob McKenzie and Brian Mulligan and people like that. They practiced for 40 odd years knowing that their stuff worked. It might not be that there's not much evidence for it, but you can't, you'll not convince me that they spent 40 years of their life seeing possibly tens of thousands of patients and to have been confused or in some ways bemused all that time about the efficacy of their work. I don't believe necessarily that the shift that's taken place has anything to do with evidence. I think it's much more to do with a cultural shift, which kind of goes to the heart of the work that I do, which is, well, what is culturally shaping our professional practices? And I don't think we're going to get to those answers by using some of the quantitative methods that appear in our journals. We can't understand what's happening to, say, musculoskeletal practice by doing another study on shoulder instability. And yet that, that kind of model of quantitative research that guides that kind of research is shaping our practice all the time. And there's a complete dearth of the stuff that will answer those questions. I mean, I think you're completely right. And I think there is this interesting or curious um, simultaneous change between the sorts of interventions which are are now delivered or condoned or, or promoted within physiotherapy and MSK professionals or professions, but also the shift in research emphasis where now qualitative research has is beginning to take more of a, a prime position. And, and certainly, you know, mm. since I finished my PhD in 2012, there's just more qual research around and more people talking about it. And you're not an alien doing qualitative research as a healthcare professional. And there's, you know, it was quite uncomfortable for me at conferences, you know, when I was presenting, when I was the only qualitative presenter and you had to really argue and convince and persuade and justify your position to a group of quantitative researchers. Doesn't see, that opposition doesn't seem to be as apparent now. Um, but I was going to say, just to, in, in, in defense of quantitative research, you were saying about the, the cultural shifts, perhaps, or expectations. It, it, it's possible to conduct some quantitative survey to, to, to explore those cultural uh, practices or views or beliefs, which might have changed people's expectations around care as well. So I think... Mm, I'm not sure. I mean, one of the things... We, we, we get into the, the sort of deep weeds of methodol methodological issues here, but... But if you take something like um, a survey, a questionnaire survey, if you approach that from the perspective of a proper qualitative researcher, one of the things that stands out straight away is that quantitative research is very much about power. All research is about power to some extent. 
But qualitative research has at least attempted to look at the question of me being the one asking the questions and setting the agenda and you being just the passive recipient of that, much like in the old musculoskeletal physio books. And has said, well, how can we change that dynamic? How can we, if this is genuinely about what this person thinks, well, how do we design the research in such a way that it allows that voice to come forward, maybe even to the extent of co-designing the study? You take a survey or a questionnaire, and essentially you have set down the questions. You've set down the possible answers. And the, the person is literally just a mm. passive vessel to be emptied. I had a colleague who's a midwife who a couple of years ago, um, she was uh, went into labor, had a baby, and suffered some, she described it as low mood, but it was probably postnatal depression. And there was a, a midwife who she didn't know who was at the time doing a survey for some research she was doing for a master's degree. And I kid you not, she came onto the ward with a clipboard and having done all the informed consent stuff, she started the questionnaire that she'd set out. And the first question she asked, holding this clipboard and a pen in front of her at the end of the bed to this friend of mine, she said, are you depressed? Yes or no? And the, my colleague said, well, I'm feeling a little bit, um, a bit, a bit low, definitely. And, and she started telling us some story. And the, the researcher interrupted her and said, sorry, are you depressed? Yes or no? And of course, she can't answer that question because it's multi-layered and complex and nuanced. But the researcher had an agenda. They'd written their question, they'd had it tested, it had been approved for some kind of validity and reliability and sensitivity, and the outcome measures were, you know, reliable. And But it's a terrible thing, and it's all about power. Yeah, and you're committing that individual to a certain assumption about what depression is. I mean, you're binding them to a particular reality or position Whereas the, a qualitative approach would say, I'm really interested in, it's called depression, but all the thoughts and feelings and experiences which might, which could be described as depression, but it's a much richer, deeper and person-centered approach, is. which is aligned with this shift in person-centered healthcare too, where it's, it's whether it's, whether it's emphasizing the, the power of the participant or emphasizing the power of the patient, they seem to be, as I said, simultaneous uh, shifts, I think. And I'm, I'm always a little bit nervous about quantitative researchers doing qualitative research. I'm always nervous about mixed methods studies and multiple methods studies, because I think sometimes they just look like you're getting hit from traffic from both directions. I'm, I'm nervous about quantitative researchers who apply what they think is their basic logic about things like reliability and validity and then bolt on a little bit of an interview or something. But equally, you can see this in a lot of the, the physiotherapy literature um, that does qualitative research. There's some really, really poor quality qualitative research where people will interview six people and then do a thematic analysis and end up with three themes that tell you absolutely nothing that, or that you didn't know already and then publish it. The, the, re the really good qualitative research the stuff that really knocks your socks off, shakes your world, you know, changes your perspective, is pretty precious. Yeah, yeah, and typically Scandinavian. <laughs> There's a lot of it in Scandinavia, yeah. yeah. And maybe that's because it's, or I don't know why the, why the Scandinavians are particularly good at it, but 
there's this the simple reduction of qualitative methods purely or qualitative research to purely a set of methods and techniques for analyzing data or collecting data rather than really immersing oneself into that um, those theoretical or ontological epistemological positions whatever it might be that paradigm and really getting yeah. a sense of you know why is yeah. it okay and i remember you said this i can't remember which, which series of your three papers you you said it but you i don't think you ever really answered it but i think it might have been the first paper where you introduced the philosophy of qualitative research i think mm. it was and you said by the end of this paper i would have convinced you i'm paraphrasing here why it's okay for mm. qualitative studies to have a small sample size or even you might even put a number on it three you know, three participants yeah. and and what i'm not sure if you ever really answered it <laughs> well, you did answer it by the paper but i was i was looking for and the answer to my my yeah anyway but it's on having that understanding. Why is it okay to have six participants? You know, why is that okay? You know, what makes that as as trustworthy and as valid as any quantitative piece of evidence? You know, and and, and understanding those arguments. And it's a really difficult thing. I mean, I spend a lot of time teaching core research methods to students, and even second and third year physio students are so used to the idea of thinking quantitatively, that they think it's very odd that you could have six people in a study. But you spend an hour with them and you get them going through some mock data and you talk about what you're trying to do and how it is so different, your goal to quant research, yeah. and your purpose is different. And you're not trying to have a representative population because from foundation principles, qual research, much like clinical practice, says that everybody's different, everybody is unique. Nobody represents anyone. And so you're after depth, you're after diversity, you're after difference, you're not after sameness. And so you can vastly oversaturate a study by putting 20, 30, 40 people in, into a qualitative study. Um, you don't need that many. I did a study with eight people with chronic lung disease at the end of the 90s, a big phenomenological study yeah. on breathing. It took me four years to gather the data from eight people because it's immersive, it's detailed, it's complex. It's no more detailed than if you do a study with 10,000 data points in a spreadsheet from multiple quantitative measurements across time. It's no more detailed or complex than that. It that takes time too, but it's a different, you're doing it for a different reason, you're doing it for a different outcome, you're doing it for a different purpose. Yeah. Um, and the two do not comfortably sit together. Well, pragmatism is the thing that brings those two together, right? That seems to kind of marry the the, the two competing paradigms. That seems what's, what's underpins much of mixed methods research, where you kind of just paper over the cracks, I suppose. But I think what you, you know the thing again, we are digressing. Um, but it's the slippery slope of relativism, I think, which sometimes. Uh, you know, I don't know, either undermines qualitative research. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, I, I announced in my thesis that I took a, a relativist position, meaning that truths are uh, multiple and there is no single objective reality and truth, all that kind of stuff. If you read papers around rel or relativism, is, is a bit of a spectre. It kind of undermines itself because you're pretty much saying um, it undermines its own position in a way to say, you know, all positions are equal and it becomes quite challenging I think to defend, uh, but we are massively digressing and we're going into relativism. Uh, but I think if you start down this route of saying, well, I accept that 
each of my patients is unique. Each of the people I, I live with and work with is unique. And I want to understand what the, and I'm doing the kind of quote marks here, truth, air quotes, the truth of their of health for them is. If you start from that basic principle, then you have to start thinking about then what does that truth mean? Does my truth equate to your truth? And how do we arrive at that point? And how is that made possible? And then what do I, if I want to get to that, what kind of approaches do I need to use? And then you're off down the road of thinking about, okay, so here's one school of thought and here's another, and I like that one, but don't like that one. So within this one, there's three more, and I like that one and not that one. And you start down that route of thinking, well, ontologically, what frames the way I'm thinking about truth that's going to underpin the whole study? And the people who don't do that, who just want to, I'll just ask them five questions, assume that that's neutral and valid information. It's no closer to the truth than if you'd have just shouted it off the balcony and, you know, guessed it yourself. It could have been done Thursday afternoon down the pub. It does require some rigour. It does require some depth. And then there's the whole tension between rigour and and uh, the rigour and quality to research. To what extent does rigour kind of confine that creativity that the Scandinavians do, do so well when you start to make it too systematic? And it's, it's you know, Sanawaski talks about this where you, where where there's still that it's not the, the paradigm debate, but just the argument, like those criterion wars, I think they were called, where you, you're placing too stronger systematicity on qualitative research to make it accepted, to make it look like proper research. You can stifle some of that creativity and those narratives, which are really the construction of the, of the participant with the researcher. Well, there's a woman, Elizabeth St. Pierre Adams, who's become quite well known in the qualitative community in the last five or six years for her work on what's now called post-qualitative. And she has a lovely paper, and I'll send you a link to it. We can post it up with the, yeah. with the podcast. It's where she talks about being very much involved in the 1980s and early 90s when qualitative research was really taking off, particularly in healthcare. And it was really funky. The people doing it were creative, and they were, they were breaking away from the kind of narrow, strict confines of quant research and trying to find some other ways to say some different stuff. And um, the methods that they came up with were amazing. And then it started to attract the interest of quant researchers in healthcare who started to see that actually it was taking some of that territory. And so they started putting pressure on qual researchers saying, look, your stuff is completely unreliable. It's not valid. There's no mm. outcome measures that we can measure. And rather than resisting that, qual researchers almost universally started to say, okay, so we need to define some credibility and transferability standards and, and put some language around it that makes it acceptable to quant researchers. And uh, Elizabeth St. Pierre Adams says, at that point, things started to go wrong for qual research. And for the next 20 odd years, you see a barren spell of qual research, which debates rigor and methods and validity and reliability and credibility and standards and systematizing the process. Yeah. To the point where she's now, uh, Adams is now saying, we have arrived now at a point where there's a cleft in quality research. You've got the people who want to do it in a kind of systematized quasi-quant way. And those people who are holding on to the idea of the radical possibility of thinking differently. And that's the post-qualitative world. And if you look in journals like Qualitative Inquiry, yeah. you'll find stuff in there which is really funky. I mean, yeah. 
outrageously weird that transcends the humanities, that transcends the arts, that transcends performance-based work, that transcends design. And But this is where the real innovation is coming from. This is where the, the really funky stuff is coming from. The other stuff, the 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 standard qual stuff, if you is quite an arid space now. And it's looking almost like quant did in the 1980s and 90s, yeah. where people were still using pie charts. It's not a good space, really. And it might be pressure from journals, you know, being on a journal, you would authors have to submit a checklist, so you're using Coric, for example, some um, reporting guideline where you've got to include X, Y, and Z, and it begins to standardise the essentially the layout and the description and to some extent the methods of the the papers themselves well this goes back to what we were saying earlier on about the subtle ways in which quant imposes itself on students in their curricula but also in publication because you only have to say to you only have to make a condition on a journal that it has a, a hypothesis aims methods results conclusions section they have to be in there and already you've imposed a quantitative way of thinking about reporting. Yeah. And if you can't deviate from that because you can't see why you could, then you don't understand what qualitative research is. So it's going to be a ropey, a difficult journey for that article to get published anyway. Um, and we see this all the time. There's, there's really in physiotherapy, there's one journal that uh, is used a lot for um, more complex, more subtle, theoretically robust thinking, physiotheory and practice I'm talking about. And that has an open word limit, which is important because a lot of the stuff we do is theoretically complex and needs explaining to an audience that doesn't know that stuff. And it doesn't impose the aims, methods, results, conclusion kind of model. You can structure the paper in whatever way is co consistent with what you're trying to do. Yeah. Why the other journals can't be more open to those kind of approaches, I don't know. Did you remember seeing Trisha Greenhall's response to the BMJ? So BMJ, with her, or their position was, you know, we're no longer going to publish qual research for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. And then there's quite a nice retort back, actually, from, from Trisha and, and colleagues, which, which not only argued theoretically, but also evidenced the fact that some of the most highly yeah. cited journals within BMJ were qualitative papers, like some paper on diabetes or something like that, which was all or statins or cholesterol, whatever it might be. Yeah. That was really interesting. Yeah. I'm just interested to know that when you were, did you get into the physiotherapiness of physiotherapy? So the muscles, the bones, the joints, manipulation, did you learn the kind of attachments of the iliolumbar ligament? I mean, how... Or did you know quite early on that actually that's just not for you? You're much more interested in, as you said, the lived experience of your patients? Uh, very much so. And I think one of the biggest um, gifts that I've been given in my professional career is that traditional training. Um, I was, my interest clinically was respiratory physiotherapy. So I, I still know all all you could probably need to know to walk onto a medical ward or an intensive care unit or treat somebody in the community. I could work as a respiratory physiotherapist tomorrow. It's deep inside me. Um, but at the same time, I started working with paediatrics, but when I left paediatrics after my son was born, I couldn't carry on doing the things I was doing to these kids in intensive care for some, you know, I just matured very quickly when my son was born. I went and worked in a medical unit where there were lots of elderly people who'd had chronic lung disease for years. And I was immediately struck by how 
the respiratory physio that the textbooks had given me was insufficient. It wasn't just enough to know about FEV1s and forced expiratory volumes and spirometry and all of that kind of lung anatomy. There was more, I needed to know that, but there was also a lot more that I needed to know. And hence the study that I did looking at people's lived experience of breathing problems. What what does it mean to have a chronic lung disease? How does that change you as a person? Um, you don't, you, one of the things about chronic lung disease that's really interesting is that most of the people who have it know that they're going to probably die from it. And if you ever read any Alex Howe's writing on, on chronic lung disease, the death that people experience is horrible. It's frightening. Uh, imagine choking to death. And, and they experience it in, in mi- small ways, repeatedly every time they get breathless and they have a chest infection. It's not like arthritis, which you can die with. This condition is, may well kill you. And so they're frightened and they have this existential dread and they, they deal with the question of why me, the spiritual question of why am I suffering with this lung disease? And I spent a long time trying to work that through with people and it changed my rehab practice. So I think the biggest gift that I've probably been given is a standard biomedical training, but then a realization that there's a world beyond there that is infinitely fascinating and complex. So a couple of points there. One is that, so when you, did you look around at your colleagues or peers at the time that necessarily weren't alive to the lived experiences of their patients did you look at them and think they're just not interested in people's lived experience or they just don't know there is a lived experience why is it that because if you're if you're any sort of clinician even the most biomedically entrenched you know robot of a physiotherapist where you you know you still care about the individual i mean you wouldn't there are other things one can do which you don't, which isn't healthcare. If it's about money, you can go into banking or something else. But if we if we assume for a moment that the minute you enter a profession with physiotherapy, osteopathy, or medicine, you you have some you know desire to take care of someone. Why is it the case that not everyone is just obsessed with people's lived experience? What why why you and not your colleagues, for example? That's a Incredibly difficult question. I don't think it is. I don't think it is because I think one of the, if you look at most experienced clinicians of whatever stripe, whatever professional discipline they're in, to live in the real world, to be a good clinician, mature clinician, you've got to understand people. You've got to know how people, what makes people tick. You've got to be a caring person. You've got to be a thoughtful person. You've got to understand that that is as important and in some situations more important than knowing the clinical, you know, the functional anatomy of that particular thing at that time. We know that, and there's plenty of evidence to support that. And you ask any experienced clinician, they'll say that that's the case. In fact, I would say that for a lot of our students who graduate and go into practice, that journey to realizing how important that stuff is, is a real sort of pivotal moment in their career. And some of them don't ever get it and leave, become frustrated because they can never become technically good enough. They, they learn all the techniques they can possibly learn after two or three years and they become good at their craft and they start looking for that added extra thing. The mature experienced clinicians all get it. So I, I was never really, I spent a long time thinking that that was grounded in the, the judgment of clinicians and I, I was doing a lot of qualitative work 
looking at people's lived experience. But I, I increasingly became frustrated with the limits of that kind of existential research, the, uh, the choices, the kind of humanistic side of things. Partly, I think, it's because I was brought up in a, quite a political atmosphere. But um, I started to realise that there was a lot of structural stuff going on here. There were a lot of structures that got in the way of people embracing that more humanistic side. Why is it that we didn't have more of that in the curriculum? Why is it that our scopes of practice didn't celebrate that more? Why is it that we didn't make, say, things like supervision mandatory for everybody like it is in some disciplines? Why is it that we didn't have a strong field in qualitative research which embraces this? There are so many ways in which you could say, why don't we have that, 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 and that, which would help a clinician not come to that as an afterthought in the, and as have to go through that process on their own in clinical practice after they've graduated, but have it as the reason why they as implicit in their training and in their professional practice. So it was instinctive for me to go into education because that was the place where you start that journey. And I, I very much wanted to transform the physiotherapy curriculum. And I was involved in a very, um, an amazing project to do that, which I can talk a little bit about later, maybe. But I was also interested in the structural constraints, the things that are not within plain sight. And this goes back to what I was saying before, is that it's the hidden structural issues that we don't know about that we can't get to because of our physiotherapy training, because we don't know about it, that it becomes a circular thing. And, and so we end up in this situation, and this is the idea of a physiotherapy paradox yeah. that I talk about in the end of physiotherapy. Our training as biomechanists, with all of our understanding of the body as machine, has been hugely powerful for the profession over its century or more, has established a relationship with the medical profession, it's established our public trust. It's established a link with the state and given us professional prestige and legislative protection and economics subsidies through training and workplace and payment through the public health system. It's been import, hugely important. But it also means that we've been able to ignore all of the other ways in which people experience health, the cultural, the economic, the political, the social, the philosophical, the spiritual, and basically say that's either somebody else's problem or it's too complex to bring in here. And so we have a training now which equips you very well to be a biomechanist and to be a quantitative thinker and to see bodies as uh, and rehab as essentially being about producing efficient, productive human beings who are fit for the workplace. It's not good at seeing how culture and the social world shapes our thinking limits our thinking. So we lack the tools to be self-reflective yeah. so that we can understand why it is that I have to graduate before I understand people as people. It becomes a, a paradoxical circular argument. And you can't change the way that people think about future practice without changing fundamentally what you think a physiotherapist is. And then you might have to reject much of the history of the profession that's gone before and so it becomes a massive philosophical question. Hence why the end of physiotherapy tries to begin that conversation. And I want to get on to your critical arguments about the, the emergence of physiotherapy and why it is the case that we 
I say we, I'm not a physiotherapist, but I think MSK care um, hold assumptions about the body as a machine, et cetera. And why is it a case that we didn't emerge, that physiotherapy didn't emerge with a different assumption about the body, a much more lived experiential view of the body or phenomenological view of the body? Why was it the body as machine? It could have been, you know, there's nothing, there's no objective truth. There's no, nothing set in stone as to, as to why it was going to be that assumption. But just to just to say that when I spoke to Ben Darlow way back in episode one or two or three, he made a really nice comment um, about he couldn't unlearn what he what he was taught. I think I asked him a question around you know the stuff that you were taught as an undergrad physio, you know the mechanics, the intricate anatomy. As a as a much more experienced clinician, you, you it's either irrelevant or tacit that knowledge. But you, you, it's very hard to imagine what life would be like without that knowledge because you can't unlearn it. So thinking about your experience as a, you're knowing the the respiratory anatomy and physiology, you're you're now functioning from a position of 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 having that knowledge, even if it's not you know prioritised in your in your reasoning. But thinking about the the new graduates, I guess it's the challenge of trying to to educate uh, new students or new clinicians, and by saying, well, biomedical knowledge is overemphasized and seemingly irrelevant, let's rip it from the curriculum and replace it with more humanities or more psychology or something like that. That's what, they might well be missing something in their in their in their kind of practice knowledge without some of that information. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. Um, I've, two thoughts here. One is that I don't think you have to jettison the knowledge that you had before. If you accept that everyone's different and unique, and that that means that you accept a plurality of perspectives in the world, there is room for an understanding about the plura and the function of the plura as a mechanism of breathing, but also understanding that this person's frightened to death and also understanding that the fact that they're living in a crappy house because they're, they're very poor and they've got, they can't afford insulation, so they're living in damp, fungicidal environments is a problem. You can hold all of those things at the same time. My issue is that physiotherapy largely excludes a lot of that and says, no, the only real focus you need to have is on the pleura and on the FEV1. And anything else that you need to have, you'll just acquire by osmosis or some process later in life and you'll just mature on your own. As if those things will just be innate and be absorbed and they can't be learned to skills in the same way or there's no depth to them. And I think it does a, does a disservice to the profession. But it, but it is tricky, isn't it, where you... is to get the balance right, and it goes back to our discussion about research, to, to adopt two positions at the same time, thinking about mixed-method research, you're either a, a positivist and you hold assumptions about reality and truth, etc., or you're a relativist or whatever it might be. These are competing positions. So thinking about the body, either the body is a machine and there are bones and muscles and objective kind of entities that reside within those those structures those things or it's about a lived experience and i suppose as a student you know as a student which one is it dave <laughs> is it the case that there are bodies or and i should you know you because i'm my curriculum is is, is replete with anatomy and biomechanics and then at some point in the course, I learned that actually there's this thing called lived experience and you know, sociology. And, and it's bringing those two together because the, the knowledge themselves come from competing positions or, or paradigms. 
Well, this is a complex question and a complex answer, but um, there's a couple of, of things that I want to comment on here. The first thing is that in 2006, I wrote an article called Possible Futures for Physiotherapy. And it tried to argue that there are maybe four ways in which we can progress from here. And each of them is has some good things about it and each of them has a problem. The first thing is that we the physio does nothing. It sees the changing world, it sees the way that healthcare is going, and it just watches and waits and doesn't react, doesn't radically change its curriculum or its scope of practice. And the good side of that is it's, we're not being reactive. We've got a profession that's established and robust. We can carry on like this for a while yet. The downside is that we might get left behind. There are other people. There's a growing market for healthcare services. There are other com- there's more competition out there. There's less trust in the orthodox health professions than there used to be. So we could get sidelined. So maybe the answer is that we retrench back to the old body as machine kind of the biomechanical body is the core of our practice. It's always been historically at the center. Let's go back to that. And that would be great for the profession to do because it's a very clear marketable commodity that everybody knows and it's got a history behind it. The downside of that is we'll get left behind. The world might pass us by because consumers, patients, clients, they are expecting, wanting something more. Governments want something more. Funders want something more. Our allies want something more. So maybe the answer is the third option is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We get rid of the biomechanical, the body is machine kind of approach and adopt some kind of holistic renaissance rehabilitation kind of function. Now, that's got some great potential because it shows that we're being proactive, future thinking, and um, responding to the changing times. But the downside is it's hard to pin down. You don't know what you are. There's no boundaries to it. There's there's nothing you can claim. You're just all things to all people. And so it becomes amorphous and intangible and nobody knows how to do the curriculum or standardize anything. So the fourth option is that you try to find some way to bring the best of the old into the best of the new. And this then raises, comes to your, the second part of your question, which is about, well, which do you choose? Which wins? Because as you absolutely rightly point out, these different perspectives come from unique paradigms. Now, I know you've done a lot of work about the biopsychosocial model. You've talked a lot about it on the pod. I am no fan of this model at all. I think it's it tries to bring together paradigms that just do not reside together. Mm. The bio side, the biological perspective is fundamentally different to the so- social perspective and the social is fundamentally different to the psychological. And that they should not be brought together in an easy, convenient way. Now, I don't think we're seeing that. I think actually a cynic um, about the biopsychosocial model, and I would call myself a cynic, would say that it's predominantly been dominated now by behavioral psychologists aligning with medicine. You're not even getting the breadth of psychology in the biopsychological part of it. You're just getting a particular kind of psychology. And there's almost no social whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, the social stuff that you see in the literature that's published that talks about the biopsychosocial model is just tacked on very minor social home kind of issues. This is not the social perspective. 
It's like the slightly embarrassing relative. We don't mention don't mention about grandpa. No one quite knows what to do about the social side of things. It's rare. It's kind of a totally just alluded to, but no one goes into depth. It's just it's brushed over quite quite quickly in in the literature. Yeah, yeah. Which for me is the the impetus behind this second book that I was talking about. This book, Physiotherapy Otherwise, where whereas the end of physiotherapy was an attempt to try and tell a critical history of physio. Physiotherapy otherwise is a critical sociology of physiotherapy. So it's going to bring to the surface all of the ways you can think sociologically about practice, hopefully. And uh, I would say 95% of the material in the book will be completely alien to the readership, which is astonishing when you think about the stuff that's in there. Now, I teach quite a lot of this with postgrad students from all the disciplines, health, midwifery, osteopathy, physio, podiatry, and every semester we do this paper. And I'm constantly astonished by how little they know about social theory. And yet when they hear about it, they go, oh my goodness, that is exactly what I'm experiencing every day in work. So there's a, there's, the first thing is there's a lack of understanding. And I would say that perhaps the most common question I got asked after the end of physiotherapy was published was, well, you don't tell us what the answer is. You get to the end of the book and we're looking for the like 10 point mm. checklist of what to do. And I can understand why people ask that, but I thought a lot about this afterwards and it occurred to me that actually part of the reason my reluctance to do that was partly philosophical, but it was also to do with the fact that there's really no basis to this research yet. We're going to need another 10, 20 years of work like this to even get close to thinking about what the answer is. The number of studies that are you're seeing out of people in the critical physio network, by comparison with the number of papers that are published by physios every year, is still very small. Mm. There's very little qualitative research. There's very little philosophically informed, good quality research in physiotherapy. We've had 100 years to be doing stuff about physiotherapy to entrench this methodology and this, this paradigm. We need a bit more time to experiment and play and to explore before we can get even close to knowing what the answer to your question is about, you know, which one wins. I don't know. <laughs> I don't personally think you have to compromise any of those approaches, but I think you need to be able to live in at least those three main worlds and yeah. understand how they are fundamentally different to each other. Or you need some kind of framework which can comfortably integrate or allow those three to sit together and i think someone like peter stillwell would yeah. say an activism would be his framework by which he could yeah. comfortably concept or reconceptualize the biopsychosocial model i was mentioning about the curriculum process that i went through at aut um took us six years to do and one of the one of the courses that we developed was a second year course called embodiment health and movement which i don't think you would see in many physio curricula and the idea was that it introduced the students to ways of thinking about physiotherapy and used that three sort of biopsychosocial model as a framework. And the students got to spend two weeks with a private practitioner as part of their course. And during that, they designed a tool that allowed them to assess the different ways in which the practitioner practiced. And we unpacked each of the three domains in quite some detail and said they are distinctive. And we said, for instance, if you are if your practice is very much in the biomedical space, the biomechanical space, the biological space, then you'll probably structure it in particular ways. You'll um, put a lot of emphasis on measuring things. 
you won't spend a lot of time building relationships with people. You're probably going to be working in acute illness and injury. You're probably going to have short treatment sessions. Your position is probably going to be quite powerful. You're going to mandate to the person, do this, do that, do that. And you're going to have lots of outcome measures and measurable statistical stuff. But if your practice is set up very much in the kind of psychological, experiential, humanistic frame, then you're going to put the emphasis on human relationships. You're probably going to have longer treatment sessions because you want to not, you don't want to get into the details of what's wrong with your knee joint. You want to find out what's going on for them. You want to build a rapport. You want to focus on more of the subjective elements about what things mean to people rather than what things can be measured. You're probably not going to take a lot of measurements. The design of your clinic might be more about building a, real, uh, a relational, comfortable zone rather than a clinical space. And then if you operate in a social domain and you see health has been socially constructed, your practice might actually be within a local community. It might look at the local community's social issues, the social determinants of health like poverty and education and polluted atmospheres and access to walkways and things like this. You might actually work with communities rather than one-to-one -one with individuals. You might build up a sense of what that community understands as a culture historically about what health matters. You might shape your practice based on the community's needs, not necessarily your own knowledge. And so he said to them, go out and look at these practices and develop a tool that measures and assesses how much is very biological, how much is very personal and experiential and how much is very social. And they came back and then we mapped them on a simple triangle. And you would be amazed at how many of them said that the physio practitioners were generally around the middle. So you're finding practitioners who are working out how to engage with communities and a social context and with individuals and an experiential context and combine that with their biological because that's the real world. Our issue always is that they ought to be able to do that because of their training and their scope, not despite it. So how do we get to the point where the experiential aspects are understood where people understand what phenomenology is, what intentionality is, what the work of Edmund Husserl was. And they also understand the social context and they've read, they understand a little bit about Karl Marx and wage slavery and alienation and gender. And they understand how the world is socially constructed and power. And they can combine that with those three and have a mature reasoned approach that says, I'm very much over here or I'm very much here, but I know to bring these elements in. And that's really, I guess, the essence of the, the challenge. Yeah. And just thinking about when I was saying the, the tension between, let's say, the biomedical topics in, in a curriculum such as anatomy, biomechanics, et cetera, and you talking about the social and, and psychological aspects. Um, ultimately, when you're with an individual in a clinic room, they are, whilst they, are, whilst they, they have an experience of their pain or their illness, they still, they still possess a knee. I mean, there is still a patella there, whether or not the, the word is a social construct, but there is an object which looks something like you and I might call a, a patella or a, a, an L4, an L5. And so there's something to be said. There's some value in understanding that object, if you like, and, and understanding, knowing your way around that object which belongs to an individual with a whole lot of social and psychological circumstance around that, and then using touch to 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 to, to you mentioned building rapport. 
you could build rapport, you could build trust through touching that L5 or that patella or whatever the hell you want to call it. So so I think I'm just trying to um, bring myself around to say that you know, there is something about the idea that that learning anatomy only has a kind of biomedical or biomechanical means. Is it necessarily true that there's value in forming a relationship or trying to get some kind of apprehension on someone's experience by understanding their physical structure and using hands to to get a sense of, and also relaying some of that information or creating experiences with that person. So if you're poking in someone's shoulder, you are creating an experience which then might stimulate a conversation about that that particular experience, which then begins to shape that whole kind of therapeutic um, environment, that therapeutic context. You're absolutely right. And there's a classic phenomenological case study here that's used often in teaching. Phenomenology is the the belief in the, the lived experience is, is key. Um, what it is to be a person, what it is to be someone with MS or Parkinson's disease, what it is to be someone with chronic lung disease. So it's very much about the person's subjectivity, lived experience. And the only thing that is real in phenomenological terms is the thing that is present to the person's mind to which their intention is directed. So one of the ways in which this is often talked about and explained in relation to a kind of biological context is um, the story of, um, and this is all apocryphal, but every clinician will know a story like this. A woman goes to her GP and has some tests and sits down with a doctor and says, the doctor says to her, I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have breast cancer. Now, in the seconds it takes the doctor to say that, the tumour in her breast hasn't grown the structures of the cells have not changed, but everything in her life is now upside down, has turned on its head. How she thinks about her past life, how she thinks about what her future might be, even if she's frightened that if she has a future, what her relationship is with her partner or her children, her work colleagues, her parents. Even the notion of time is plastic here because maybe time stops for her and everything seems to slow down or maybe the future feels like it's collapsed in on itself. So even the kind of quantitative measure of time chronographically doesn't make sense. And this is the world of phenomenology. It says that cellular structures might not change particularly, but worlds can change, lives can change. And every patient who has an experience of becoming chronically ill loses what might Berry called their, it has a disrupted biography. They have a, a life plan that they've been writing all along and then suddenly they have this catastrophic problem and they have to write a new story about themselves. And people study those narratives in depth. It doesn't mean to say that she might not suffer terribly because of the cells in her breast tissue. You don't have to ignore those things or pretend that they don't exist. In fact, you'd be a terrible clinician if you did. But at the same time, if you're only equipped with the tools to understand the cellular biology, and you have to make all of the kind of experiential stuff up, on your own, and you're not given the same depth of learning that you're given about the origins and insertions of semimembranosis. I mean, the details we go to, to explain how the biological body works and the complete abdication of any kind of theory or concepts that would explain the the entire rest of the cosmos of health is, is shocking. But going back to that article I was telling you about, the possible futures, one of the biggest problems that we, we articulated with that idea that you, you bring the best of the old with the best of the new is exactly the point we were making earlier. These 
concepts and the ways that the biological as being fundamentally ontologically different to the social, which is ontologically different to the psychological, means that you've got a problem when it comes to teaching. Do you teach, for instance, the anatomy of the lower limb all morning and then in the afternoon you tell the students, well, actually, it doesn't matter. That's not the reality. The reality is the person's lived experience of gait, of walking, of running, of jumping out of trees. If you have, you have that problem then of how do you teach this stuff? Because you could end up very easily with a 17-year undergraduate degree with a very confused mm. student. But this is a problem for our educators. This is why we have highly paid educators in our universities. This is what we should be asking them to resolve through their curricula. And this, there's not an easy answer to that. And we need resources. We need help. And so the idea behind some of these books is to provide colleagues in education, for instance, with some ways of thinking, how can we work through this to help our students be more rounded in their practice? And to generate a, a more philosophically co cohesive curriculum. I think that's the, and that's maybe where the humanities or part, one way in which humanities can really begin to inform curriculums, curricula, that it can address these difficult questions where just standalone pieces of evidence just don't really fill those nooks and crannies, do they? It requires a much more cohesive epistemology or, or, or practice epistemology, whatever it might be. I'm a bit nervous about an emphasis on the humanities. The humanities are important and they're a, they're a necessary next step, I think, in, in the shift to broaden uh, musculoskeletal or physiotherapy practice or osteo osteopathic practice. They're a necessary next step as a complement to the biological side of things. But I think they only they still give you a very much of a kind of human agency perspective. They give you a sense that the human is the centre of the world here. And that um, and in some cases, I think people have taken that on its most trivial level and seen that, oh, okay, so we just need to communicate with people better. That's all it is. I actually think there's a third dimension that's completely missing from our curricula, and that's a sociological perspective. Um, I think we need to understand issues like power and race and class and prejudice and um, gender and uh, capital and these things that have never seemed to be related to health in a lot of our health disciplines, but that are not so much about personal relationships. They are about social structures, things that shape us and shape our choices. Um, whether we want them to do it or not, they do, they exist. Um, we see that with things like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. Um, there are individual choices being made by people uh, and there's a relational context here, but there are social structures in society that situate professions as elite and patients as passive, that situate doctors at the top of a hierarchy in healthcare as a historical artefact that situate our professions as allied to medicine because we want to we want to experience that kind of power as well and we'll we'll do what medicine has done and copy those traits that were first discovered in the 1930s and 40s and talked about as great things um, so that we can secure our position in the healthcare system we'll compete for our territory to make sure that the uh, osteopaths and the chiropractors have a hard time you know taking our work We'll, um, we'll practice things like social closure and we'll, there's so much stuff out there to understand about the power of the work that we do that we don't even touch on. So the, I'm a little bit nervous about the humanities being seen as the answer because I think 
What that does is it brings a relational context. It sees people as people. But there's more going on than just people here. And I think we need to also be thinking a lot about social structures that shape people's choices and what people do. And is this, you said you spent six years trying to develop a new curriculum. Did you get there? In the end, I mean, did you, did you arrive at a curriculum which 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 addresses these these issues, these limitations, these yeah, the, the lack of cohesion? I think it made a really good start. I mean, we had a, an amazing curriculum, and the first cohort of students went through in two thousand and twelve. So we've had a few years to to work on it now. Um, not long after the curriculum was implemented, one of the things that we started to realise, and I. Um, feel very responsible for this really having set the curriculum up is that the staff themselves the educators struggled to shift their own ways of working so we, for instance we had courses which brought the musculo and the neuro teams together around a different kind of model um, instead of having musculoskeletal papers and neurological papers we changed the shape of what they were learning the students were learning we got rid of single discipline papers so there was no more anatomy paper and physiology paper and everything was threaded through and the, there's a long explanation about this which i won't go into but in some of the and we call them papers not courses or modules they're called papers for some reason here but this one particular paper which through the neuro and the muscular teams together to co-teach started to come up with some really interesting problems the muscular team were very used to teaching to almost like spreadsheets checklists so here's a thomas test and this is how you do it and here's some photos of how you do it and then okay get into twos try it and i'll come around and check and make sure okay that's good and then the exam came around and you just had to repeat that kind of technique and and there'd be a book, maybe of 50 or 60 of these things that the students had to learn. The neuro team, they taught differently. They taught very much about principles and concepts. So they wanted to understand balance. And they wanted you to understand about base of support and center of gravity. But then they wanted you to think about how that might be different for a child who's four years old and developing, write, developing writing reactions. And then somebody who's elderly at risk of falls and then a mature adult and, some, and then pathology. And so... They came together into this course, this paper, and the one wanted to follow their kind of checklist mentality and the other one wanted to teach in principles and they couldn't work out how to solve that problem. So they ended up with one group taking six weeks and the other group taking six weeks and basically doing a shortened version of what they'd done before and getting frustrated because they couldn't pack in as much as they'd had in the past. So over time, what, what I've seen with the curriculum is that it start, it's reverting back to the way it used to. Now, things are still really good with the curriculum. It's still a very strong curriculum. And in the, in the last few years, it's, had, um, it's, it's embraced a much more um, bicultural focus because New Zealand being a bicultural country, um, we have to have a big emphasis on our indigenous um, people. And the curriculum does that a lot more. And so it's had to embrace a different kind of model. And I think the curriculum we developed 10 years ago has helped that process. But it's a very difficult thing. And I know a lot of colleagues around the world who are trying to do this stuff, finding quite a lot of resistance from their colleagues because they just want to teach more about the shoulder. And the shoulder is really important and we need tons of it. And it's difficult. Yeah, it's those um, troops on the ground, the clinical tutors, the lecturers that need binds the 
almost underplays it, but they need to be literate in some of these things too. And it becomes very hard to, to for that, for this information or this perspective or this whatever you know, this curriculum to, to really pervade students' thinking because the because the tutors um, don't fully apprehend it or or, or kind of um, are congruent with it. I was going to ask. I mean, the quantitative researcher would say to you, "So you've got this new curriculum, chucking out these, you know, these rounded clinicians. Do they get better outcomes? And, and, and better outcomes, clinical outcomes, pain, disability, higher levels of patient satisfaction, as measured by X tool. If they don't, then all of this is a waste of time. How would you respond to that?" quantitative research that says all right this sounds brilliant but what what are these better clinicians coming out more effective clinicians i would say easily the answer is yes infinitely yes and in fact the 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 impetus for a lot of the change was came from the clinicians um one of the things that our clinicians said was when they graduate, the students think in compartments. They think about anatomy, they think about pathology, they think about physiology, they think about the mechanics of things going on. They can't bring the, the four things together. And of course, if you train people in compartments and you teach anatomy over in year one and then they don't get anything else for the next four years and they teach, I don't know, the biomechanics of um, ground force reactions in year three and that's not related to year one you end up with people who think like that so one of the things that we did was stopped teaching single subjects and we start we asked the educators to work out a way that that stuff can be learned and threaded through all the way anatomy needs to be taught all the way through but it needs to be taught in context so the kind of complexity from the outset was a very important thing but the biggest issue that we found was that the clinicians were saying that they had to reteach, they had to teach the students how to be clinicians. Um, and when our students started to graduate from the new curriculum, the clinicians were so much happier with the kind of people that they were working with. Now, you and I both know that the technical side of our practice is, after a couple of years, relatively easy to learn you can the stuff that you you don't get the stuff that you are expected to pick up on your own is the stuff that often sees clinicians fail and we wanted to put that into the curriculum from the outset so maybe they didn't get quite as much stuff about the annular ligament and maybe they had to go and read that up after they'd graduated or find a bit more about that but there's an infinite volume of that kind of stuff that clinical situations throw up all the time anyway and we're used to going away and researching those things and if you've got the tools and you've got the skills to do that work you can do that pretty much overnight anyway and we know that this generation of young people they're coming out as just in time thinkers anyway rather than just in case thinkers like i was trained i was trained to know a thousand things on the off chance that i might need that one tomorrow whereas these days and the internet's made a big difference to that as well Students aren't doing that. They're learning things when they need them and sometimes 20 minutes before they need them. So if they've got the tools and the skills to learn them and they know how to find that stuff and how to judge its quality and how to do that quickly and efficiently and make sense of it and contextualize it, which is complicated stuff, then they're going to be much better placed. And so hence why you have to start from the very beginning, getting them to see the interconnections between things. And then what do you say about to then you start to have a 
a graduate that looks quite different from a physiotherapist that graduated in University X in country Y. And then we start to get this variance in what, or the question, what is a physiotherapist? What if, because it, it was in, in this place, the physiotherapist is about, or their professional identity is around muscles, bones, joints, fixing passive individuals. We've got this new uh, graduate, which, which looks like a social worker slash psychotherapist slash you know, exercise physiologist, yeah, but but it nicely integrated. And, and then it comes to, I think, and I think you mentioned this, I know you would have mentioned it in one of your books or one of the presentations on YouTube about, well, what is physiotherapy about then? Because it, the current conception of physiotherapy is like osteopathy, muscles, bones, joints, etc. But to kind of rewrite that and to actually to restructure, to give new foundation to, to, the, to the practice you'll end up with a different looking profession or you'll describe it in different ways. I think you're getting to the ax, uh, the real heart of the issue for me now after all of these years. Then, then if that's a good way, why why are the osteopaths and the chiropractors messing around with a different philosophy? Why don't we all just adopt the same thing? If it, if it is the case that, you know, does there need to be three professions, at least from an MSK perspective, if it is true, and I'm using my air quote, that this version of physiotherapy seems to be philosophically and clinically better, effective, whatever. It breaks down some of those professional ideologies and professional barriers. Yeah. I th as I say, I think this is getting to the actual, the real heart of the questions around our professions right now and why I think this book, Physio Otherwise, is going to tackle this. Where is, where, where is the professional project right now? Um, our professions have established a particular way of being in the world for a hundred years. We followed in the medical model. We tried to establish our discrete position, create boundaries between each other and separate things out and write scopes of practice that were distinctive uh, to sell um, and market something to the, to the state and to the public. We are unquestionably now entering what Edgar Burns has talked about as a post-professional era. Um, if you read anything around things like automation and AI and robotics, you see this. The Richard and Daniel Suskin's book, The Future of the Professions, talks about this. Um, you see it in the way that the healthcare funding is changing, moving away from the old welfare models, opening up marketplaces for competition, more neoliberal economics coming into play. You see it in the decades-long now managerial distrust of health professionals being autonomous and deciding for themselves who gets paid and by what and by whom. You're seeing it in an opening of people's experience of wanting alternatives and complementary therapies. It used to be that your options were to have to go and see your GP, you maybe saw a nurse and occasionally another person. My grandparents had very few options. Now you've got myriad options for where you go if you've got a bit, you're sore or you're a bit achy. You're seeing it in the aging population and the fact that People are living with multiple comorbidities and long-term conditions that can't be cured, that aren't amenable to just the professions that were great at the acute self-limiting conditions. In so many ways, we are coming to a crossroads, not just because it's not just for physios, it's for all of us. All of us that have claimed orthodox territory in the past have claimed to be conventional. So we're all facing it. We are entering a post-professional era and we need to understand what's going on here and how this is happening. 
you've got to bear in mind, I wrote a book called The End of Physiotherapy. So I'm, I'm, that book was the start of a contemplation about, well, if we are arriving at this point where the traditional model of what physiotherapy is and where it sits in the world in relation to medicine, in relation to the state, in relation to the public, in relation to our collaborators and competitors and allies, if we are arriving at the end of that point, what does the future look like for physiotherapy? Um, and slowly, slowly, I'm starting to get a clearer sense of what that looks like. And the the last part of Physio Otherwise will unpack that, how I see what that might look like. I think that the territorial disputes between physios and osteopaths and chiropractors are probably an artifact that began around the 1970s and will probably carry on for another decade or two. But I think they're an artifact of a particular time period that... Um, will soon become re relatively redundant. I think the force of events around us will, will mean that that argument becomes far too incestuous and too, too minor, really, and there's bigger forces changing the way that health professions work generally. Yeah, I think from the, from the perspective of osteopathy and probably chiropractic is that it arose you know, in the 1800s in Missouri in opposition to medicine, you know, it was that these founders kind of looked at what medicine was at the time and thought, well, this is just, you, you know, giving arsenic for back pain doesn't seem to work particularly well. You're better off just kind of doing a bit of a massage. And they were probably right at the time. Um, but as time has gone by, it's been, those, you know, there's been a justification on the part of osteopaths to say, yeah, we're not like these physios. We're very different. Um and to almost to, 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 to strengthen or deepen those silos in a way. But what we're talking about now just begins to, 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 to break down those barriers. But it still requires professionals to, to accept them and to be open to them. And I, I, my sense is that often these, these, I don't know, I don't know what I think, whether the, 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 the professional identities are getting stronger and people are resisting. And the minute you start to look like a, a if you're an osteopath, you, you kind of look or behave like a physio, you kind of get chastised by your professional colleagues. I don't, I don't quite know. It still, it still requires kind of buying from the professions to, to, to lose some of these ideas and to take up new you know, conceptions or, or, or theories or practices. Well, I think we have, we're in a fortunate position because we're not journalists um, we're not um, taxi drivers. We're not people working in the manufacturing industries that have been decimated by um, automation and neoliberal, neoliberal economic reforms and things like that. In our world, I think people are always going to want physical contact. They're always going to want some kind of therapy that involves people putting their hands on. And I hope that in the future, we're still allowed to do that and we can do it. But some kind of way that somebody can look at a pattern of movement and go, there's something wrong there and I think I know what it is. Let me see if I can help. I can't see that disappearing. So I think it's we're in a good position. But I think there's another question to be asked. And I ask this of my colleagues sometimes. And it is, if it was in the interests of the public to dismantle osteopathy or physiotherapy, would you do it? And I'm sometimes alarmed that people even have to think about the answer to that question. Yeah. Because, of course, the key point there is if it's in the public's interest. And sometimes we, talk, we use the rhetoric of patient and person-centred care a lot, but our primary project as physiotherapists is to preserve the good name of physiotherapy and promote physiotherapy and sometimes in competition with others and to see it endure and persist. 
I'm more interested in whatever kind of physical therapy needs the pe people are going to need in the future. Now, whether that means that we have to dissolve the old model of physiotherapy because it's too centered on the body as machine and we have to reconstruct it from the ground up again to be something different, to be something more holistic and more rounded and more relevant to the 21st century, and we have to get rid of the name and we have to start again with something new, I think then there's an ethical and moral question about that because if that's in the public's interest, then of course we should do that. And whilst it would be painful for people to see that kind of reformation of something that they've spent all their life training in and feel very much as part of their identity, it's still ethically wrong to persist with a program and a, and a curriculum and a scope that is interest that is serving the interests of its members and not the public. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and um, I, I think that. You know, you hit the nail on the head. It's about preserving or holding on to the, these ideas, these ideas or these practices, purely or merely to fulfil some sort of sense of fulfilment, identity, satisfaction, selfishly, which gets, which gets in the way of other ways of being or practicing. I think that's the problem, and it's no doubt you can hold on to. I suspect, much like religion, you can hold on to some somewhat wacky or obscure beliefs and behaviours, but don't necessarily get in the way of living an ethical, moral life. And I suspect it's much the same with healthcare, that you can, if you if you want to believe that, you know, the, that you can palpate the, the CSF flowing through the ventricles of the brain, if, as long as that doesn't get in the way of, of ethical, evidence-informed, relational care, I don't necessarily see the problem. But when it starts to get in the way of, of effective practice then then it becomes a problem these these ideas or these theories do become an obstacle to better care i absolutely agree and i think one of the things that we're seeing is in the last decade and and we've seen it really very much this year is how the internet and social media is liberating people to some extent to express their individuality in some very complex and very nuanced and very diverse ways Maybe people always wanted to do that, but they didn't have the means or the mechanisms to do it like people have now. And I know people bemoan the fact that you have this, have social media and it's a, it's sometimes very shouty and very rude and, and things like that. But from a pragmatic point of view, what people are trying to do there is express their unique identity, which is what we talked about from the basis of qualitative research. That has to inform what our next generation of physios and osteopaths think about the world. They think differently about their identities to the ones that we inherited from our parents and grandparents and began our training whenever we trained. Practices, prof professional practices, the identity of a physiotherapist will mean something different to somebody who's 10 today to somebody who's 60 today. You'd hope so. You would hope so, but to impose a model of a curriculum and a scope of practice on the 10-year-old who's coming into physiotherapy in eight, nine, 10 years' time from somebody who's in their 60s and to think that physiotherapy could operate in the world in the same way and, and exist in the same way or offer the, the practitioner the same kind of sense of coherent security, I think is a misreading of the way that 21st century world is. We live in a very postmodern time. We have to understand those what postmodern thinking is, what it's based on, what it what its premises are, doesn't mean you have to accept it, 
but you should understand it because if you can't understand it, how are you going to shape a curriculum for a 10-year-old? Because you've got to be writing the curriculum now for them because it's going to take that long for it to come into fruition. A, a colleague of mine in Australia, uh, Gary Fryer at McUni, has lovely expression, if one is to time encapsulate osteopathy, it'll, you know, so it's just preserved. The, the, the identity and the essence of osteopathy is just kept the same through time. It will just atrophy and die into some irrelevant craft group. And I think something like Comic Con or some weird kind of basket weaving. I mean, basket weaving is an art to it, but but um, it's something about just preservation of ideas and identity, which the, the more it's many clinicians want to hold on to. You've got to pass this stuff down. And any deviation, the minute you start to kind of drift away from that mold of what an osteopath is, or what a physio is, or what a chiropractor is, then you're you're committing some sort of professional ideological crime. And I think it's a mark of a mature profession that it can have these conversations yeah. and not feel like somebody's trying to destroy the profession. And I think it's it's fantastic that in physiotherapy we have things like the Critical Physio Network and we have these articles being published and they are getting published and people are reading them and talking about them and having a conversation because I think the more of that, the better. The more people that are bringing uh, philosophically and socially and theoretically informed perspectives maybe from outside physiotherapy maybe outside from from healthcare from the arts from the humanities from politics from sociology from philosophy and bringing that back in and raising some of those questions about well where are we going what are we doing why are we doing it that way and not this way the better yeah i mean you just and i'm looking at the time and we've kind of gone way over the time that you promised you'd give me but just the, the last few things one was that um you said, I think, again, saying the unsayable or thinking the unthinkable, mm. you, that, that being able to really kind of question mm. what do we deserve to even persist? I mean, thinking about the vaccine that's just been you know, found or developed yesterday, that will likely be developed and persist and become a therapeutic intervention because it's proven to be effective. It's a it's it's purely by historical chance that I'm an osteopath. It's you know, there are some political and historical events which occurred. Which, it wasn't the case that someone found osteopathy under a rock because of my goodness, look at this. <laughs> it is so effective. We just got to scale this up. We've got yeah. to develop the profession. It's that effective. It would be a crime. It'd be it'd be a crime against humanity not to scale this up. And and the likewise of physiotherapy and chiropractic and and, and medicine, I I suspect, but. That contradicts my vaccine example, but but do you see what I mean? That that there's no reason why we should. There's no. There's not. There's not a clear reason why we should exist or why we should continue to to exist, right? I mean that that has to be argued. It's not self-evident that we should continue as, as professions. That we need a, a much kind of a clearer argument or reflective argument as to why we deserve to to exist as professions. And I think that that's a really, really important point. You know, our professional histories are very short in the history of humanity. People have been doing physical therapy stuff, osteopathic stuff for thousands of yeah. years, since perhaps since the birth of humanity. We come along in the last hundred odd years and think that history began in 1894 or, you know, in 1870 or what have you. Our projects, our professional projects are just a, a blip in history and they are no more the the answer the right answer than anything else i mean i'm convinced that we are in the latter stages of the physiotherapy project that was established in the late 19th century um and that it will mutate into something different in the near in the future perhaps not within my working lifetime but 
but in the near future in historical terms. Um, and so to understand the emergence of physiotherapy and osteopathy as disciplines means you have to understand the conditions that made them possible. And physiotherapy and osteopathy are the effect, they are the answer, the, they are the achievement they're the response to a set of questions, social questions about how do we do certain things? Like, for instance, physiotherapy was a convenient answer to how do we treat men who've got injured in the war? Um, it was one of, the, one of the things that physio was the answer for. But physio is not the origin. It's the answer. It's the solution to a set of questions. So if we're going to understand the future for our professions, we've got to be asking, we've got to be working out what the questions are that society is asking of health professionals, of people. And if the questions change, then the answer that is required will change. And we need to fit the answer to the question, not just persist with the answer to a question that came up in 1918 or 1894. That was an old answer. Physiotherapy is, I would suggest, an answer to a set of questions that arose the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. I don't think in its current form it is the answer to the questions that will be asked about healthcare in 2030, 2035, 2040. Now, you will have some physios who will hold on to physiotherapy by their fingernails because they love it and they treasure it and it's precious to them and it absolutely is. But as I go back to the point I made earlier on, there is an ethical question here about giving a proper answer to the questions that are being asked. And I don't think we're going to get to understand the questions if we only use our body as machine technologies to carry on with our practice. We have to go deeper. But the minute you're interested in the person, like I said, if you're not going to do physiotherapy, if you're, if you're genuinely interested in the person, you've got to grant the clinician that they're interested in getting people better. Because otherwise, why, why are they doing physiotherapy? I mean, there might be a range of other reasons, but if you're really not interested in, in helping people, I know it's cliched, then, then why are you doing physiotherapists? You grant them that they're interested in helping people. Then the minute they accept that they're interested in helping people, then they've got to be open to the best way of helping those people. You know, that looks like a different form of physiotherapy. Then you've got to shift to that. It makes no sense to be, well, I'm really interested, I really want to help people, but not enough to begin to change my practice or change how I think or change how I view the body. That That would seem like, competing positions you either care about people and are willing to do whatever it takes to deliver the most ethical effective you know, evidence-informed care or you don't except that you can't do whatever it takes you're not allowed to do whatever it takes you're allowed to do whatever it takes within a restricted boundary of what the profession says is allowable because the profession wants to establish its scope and its position. It doesn't want you being a counsellor, doesn't want you being a psychotherapist, doesn't want you treading on their toes. It certainly doesn't want you doing prescribing medications, although some of that's relaxing now. Or, you know, There are all kinds of restrictions. But also, I think you're right, it is complex, the reasons why people are in practice. Wanting to help people is definitely a key feature. Um, but at the same time, right now, for instance, one of the reasons why um, orthodox health professional practice is so so much in demand for students is it's one of the few remaining secure jobs. Most young people know that the job situation is so precarious now that actually they'll go into something because 
they know that it's a, a job with a, a career with a good job prospect. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It, you, but you, the idea that phys, that health professionals come into it and they don't care about money, they don't care about status or prestige, they just want to help people is, you know, I mean, that's nice, very romantic, but I, I accept, I accept that. But it would, it, it would, it's, it's on the list somewhere. But I guess you're right. Yeah, if, if absolutely. If it's the case that it's number three on the list, and actually it's more about making money, then I can see a motivation not to change. Yeah. Well, if no, if the but if the money moved, I mean, in private practice, for instance, there's a there's a massive drift towards public health and health promotion work. And if you had government funding shifted from, say, the management of acute, short-term, self-limiting conditions to managing social determinants of health in the community and money was put there, you would have osteopaths and physios flocking there in droves because they're trained, they're skilled, they can do that kind of work. It's just you can't do that work if there's no funding. You can't live on the basis of it. You have to be able to make a living to be able to practice your job. So if the money moved out there and the policy shifted, then we would go there. So the economics matter. The economics may be the biggest single thing if we're going to have a transformed professional um, environment. The biggest economic drift, though, is towards neoliberal reforms, which are essentially taking away public support for health funding, putting more emphasis on the individual and leaving the individual to use their tax dollars to choose what they want. So there's much less of a policy drive towards a welfareist model of a different form in the community that focuses on social determinants, public health and such. It's closing down the old secondary care system, putting things in the community and then leaving it up to people to decide for themselves. That's a problem for us because we've always relied very much on that centralised support to fund our training, fund our practice, if it goes out to individuals, then it will be devil, kind of devil takes the hindmost kind of um, competition. And then we'll definitely see a very different kind of relationship between physios, osteopaths, chiropractors, doctors, nurses and such. We definitely wandered, didn't we? We did wander a bit. It was very <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally, thank you. You've been so generous for your time, Dave. Oh, you're very welcome, Ollie. It was lovely talking to you. We didn't get to talk about evidence-based practice, a whole bunch of things that we didn't get to. We'll have to have another one and keep going. It, it was truly wonderful. You're very welcome, Ollie. It was lovely seeing you. And have a lovely rest of the evening. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.